At the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello, and welcome to Weird Signal, a podcast of all things weird, eerie, and hauntological. I'm Lucy, and I'm here with Sean. Hello! This week, we venture back to the place from which we first set out on this strange podcast journey, the provincial England of the early 1970s, as we explore the grim world of folk horror. I should say, as a quick disclaimer before we go on, while darker themes are by no means unfamiliar territory to this podcast, we do advise some listener discretion on this one, uh, which will include depictions of rape, murder and child abuse. So folk horror refers to a tendency, or one might say a current in uh, horror films and horror fiction, uh, that takes its cues typically, but not exclusively, from British folklore, legends, traditions and interestingly landscapes it's horror that's born out of rolling spectral fogs and hills and foreboding forests the archetypal folk horror setting would be uh, an isolated village where the inhabitants cleave to the ancient ways and rites and to the elden tongues of our foremothers and so on. Uh, the term became <laughs> the term. I'm very proud of that. Right, the term became popular in 2010 thanks to Mark Gatiss's documentary series, A History of Horror, which you should find on the internet and watch because it's very good and accessible and covers a lot of territory. And that's also interestingly kind of what we saw ultimately kicking off the uh, folk horror revival that's really blown up in recent years and has spawned a couple of uh, revival films itself, which we're undoubtedly going to talk about possibly on this podcast certainly in future ones. Absolutely. Uh, so in this documentary, Gatiss describes certain films that appeared in the uh, the late 60s and the early to mid 70s, where the thing that kind of ties them together is the they treated the rural as a site of horror. The folk horror setting usually involves a revival of or a return to a prior, typically pre-Christian symbolic order, uh, which may or may not involve the presence of the supernatural. Folk horror often appeals to a sense of deep time, to the uh, the idea that there is a rich pre-Christian history now lost to us, but is threatening to return. And it is precisely this threat where the horror comes from. It's almost as if uh, time has formed a barricade that keeps the monsters out, but this barricade has started to crumble. The past is finding a way to eat its way back into the present. And I'm sure it's very kind of... Um, very uh, familiar territory to the uh, listeners of this podcast to find uh, some potential reference to Derrida in that, as we certainly did. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, the folk horror revival that I described uh, does appear to have roughly coincided with the popularization of hauntology as a theme, and a lot of the kind of early writings of. Um, well, actually, no, I mean uh, Mark Fisher and uh, Simon Reynolds predate it. But uh, when it was like really kind of becoming popular and getting articles in The Guardian and stuff, that was roughly when Folk Horror Revival was coming back as well. Yes, and indeed in uh, Mark Fisher, as, as we've referred to several times, Mark Fisher's last book, The Weird and the Eerie, does have um, sections where it discusses not explicitly, I don't think, I don't think it explicitly discusses the films of what we were going to be talking about in a moment, the Folk Horror Chain, as it's mm. called, but definitely... Um, addresses the ki- many of the prominent themes that make folk horror a distinct setting, uh, especially in his discussion of the eeriness of the English countryside. Which was a large part of the inspiration for us to initially cover the Stone Tape when we started out this podcast. Yes, absolutely. 
Uh, as, as such, folk horror often involves a haunting of sorts, even if this isn't uh, literally a ghost. Um, this takes us back, obviously, to our hauntological beginnings with the stone tape. And it's worth dwelling on, again, on the meaning of hauntology and the meaning of the haunt as such. The haunt is precisely the disturbance of the proper flow of time and the proper place of being. The haunt, the image of the ghost, uh, is a being which is no longer meant to be present, but is present, and is present precisely as something that ought not to be present. That's not difficult at all. Uh, and furthermore, is present not as something that belongs to the present, but as an intrusion from the past, from the present prior, as it were. And again, this plunges us back into the territory of the eerie, of Fisher's definition of the eerie. We are dealing with failures of absence and inappropriate presences. It also uh, chimes quite strongly with a certain angle of folk horror in terms of uh, critical reception of it uh, that deals with the primary focus on the landscape. And that's particularly resonant with uh, Mark Fisher's statements about how one of the legacies of the eerie, what it borrows from the uncanny, is this ascribing of identity or agency or personality to inanimate things. Fisher picks up on the stone tape as like kind of mineral things holding memories or exhibiting a presence, which is which is fundamentally eerie. And this definitely is very much a thing in folk horror, especially ones dealing with more supernatural themes. Absolutely. The speaker without a voice, the voice without a speaker. Folk horror doesn't necessarily have to have a supernatural dimension, though. Uh, this is, uh, and then what is arguably the archetypal folk horror movie, The Wicker Man, which goes without saying we are definitely going to cover. Mm -hmm. um, the Wicker Man doesn't have a supernatural dimension to it at all. Uh, rather, it involves the discovery of a return of a pre-modern spirituality, which has rejected the social norms and sexual mores of modernity and modernity's Christian heritage. A slightly different case is Witchfinder General, uh, which is a period piece dealing with a heavily fictionalised account of uh, Matthew Hopkins, the eponymous and self-declared Witchfinder General. Witchfinder General, unlike the Wicker Man, doesn't involve a return to a, uh, or the return of, rather, a traumatic past. Uh, the film is itself a return to a traumatised point in the history of rural England by merit of it being a period piece. And both The Wicker Man and Witchfinder General are regarded as the kind of canon folk horror films. Uh, they're the ones that Mark Gatiss explicitly picks up on as being the epitome of these themes. But he described what's later been described by Adam Scoville as the folk horror chain. He described a kind of unholy trinity of folk horror films, which were The Wicker Man and Witchfinder General. Uh, however, there was a third and much less known, but perhaps unfairly uncelebrated third part of that trilogy. Which is why we are going to be talking about Blood on Satan's Claw. Blood on Satan's Claw is the 1971 film of director Piers Haggard, produced for the legendary Tygon British Film Productions Company. 
It stars Patrick Weimark, Linda Hayden, and Anthony Ainley, and concerns the incursion of ancient and malevolent forces into the daily life of a quiet English town in the early 18th century. The film opens with the discovery of what appears to be some inhuman and unmistakably malignant remains in a remote field. Though the find is initially dismissed as an animal by the local dignitary and bastion of scepticism, the judge, played by Patrick Weimark, rumours begin to circulate of strange noises heard in the night, and the spectres of old traumas begin to resurface. Shortly thereafter, the dark rumours are accompanied by the spread of what seems to be an outbreak of skin disease and hysteria amongst the local population, and the discovery of a conspiracy amongst the local youths, whose ringleader is the willful and sadistic Angel Blake, played by Linda Hayden. Eventually, after his soon-to-be daughter-in-law and other members of his family succumb to the demonic contagion, the evidence finally prevails over the scepticism of the judge, and in seeking to root out the malevolence, hatches a scheme of his own. On the pretext of a trip to London on legal business, he departs the town vowing to return once the growing chaos has reached its crescendo. Then, and only then, he claims, will it be possible to destroy this evil once and for all. The manifestation he desires comes about all too soon. In his absence, Blake and her followers conduct a campaign of rape and murder, culminating the horrific ritual known as the Scarlet Ceremony. This rite, conducted in the ruins of an old church, serves to bring about the fleshy reunion of their demonic master, Bayamoth. Eventually, the judge returns, and rousing a hunting party together, ventures out into the ruins where the cult of Behemoth is celebrating the return of their master. Unsheathing a large two-handed blade, the judge and his followers proceed to massacre the cultists, destroying the demon in a cleansing wave of fire and blood. So this is, even by our standards, this is a very strange film. It's a very peculiar film. And there are kind of a number of very interesting and kind of conflicting elements at play. Uh, What I've kind of come to describe as kind of duality that just never really goes away or finds a resolution. Basically, the fundamental one of these is the fact that this is the only one of the folk horror trilogy that has a literal supernatural presence in the film. The other two agents make... um, well, the other two kind of make human agents the uh, main source of horror. And that's kind of something that we'll see come up a lot, the discordances between belief in what's out there, what's actually what's out there, and what people interpret to be out there. as well as this kind of contest of um, belief and reality and science, as it were, uh, there are other kind of tensions that boil up throughout the film, are very interestingly kind of geared around religion and class dynamics. Piers Haggard himself, who directed the film and wasn't the primary uh, writer of the script, but did modify it a lot to his own vision, is quoted as saying, uh, My writing contribution is entirely in the area of character, of character subtlety, Trying to make family relationships resonate. Some of the non-action stuff is mine, like the kids wandering through the woods and you're haunted by fears and anxieties and so on. That stuff is mostly mine, so that was my contribution to try and thicken the texture. And um, thicken it, he certainly does, because um, (laughs) as we'll um, no doubt discover, this is a very, very dense film in a lot of ways. Yeah, this is a... 
This is going to be a dense episode. Yeah, a dense episode for a dense film. It's going. It's going the way of uh, of hardware <laughs> already. <laughs> um, but yeah, one of the key kind of themes of the folk horror thing I mentioned is this idea of the struggle not of different entities but of just different belief structures and this is uh, more or less synonymous with the presentation of the countryside which is basically the fundamental key thing of folk horror it deals with the countryside um, unless you go in for the kind of urban weird folk horror and weird as folk horror thing which we'll get onto I think in the next episode but basically it's this idea that um, the city is civilization the countryside is ancient things in the past and mystery and, and, uh, the, and civilization is, of course, rationality yes. and uh, skepticism and order. It is uh, actually, no, in a certain sense, this does take us back to hardware. The city is, of course, the polis, and the countryside is the outside. Yeah, but it's kind of flipped because this is in the countryside now, and it's it's coming face to face with uh, the the kind of ancient evil in its natural setting, which is kind of exciting. Um, but the the key protagonist, really, of the film. Um, is is the judge and it's very fitting that as the kind of main kind of skeptical character he is uh presented as being well he is explicitly from london well he's been kind of planted there he's like a kind of i think in a cer- yeah. like in a certain sense he almost strikes me as being uh almost a colonial figure yeah he is he's does it does feel like he has a lot in common with the uh, with the image of the white european colonial official trying who's been you know uh, implanted into uh, another culture, into another society, with the express intention of uh, applying European rational enlightenment uh, principles to the governance of this territory, of this area, and in a certain sense, a lot of the um, the, the tensions in this film, with the return, you know, the the arrival of this uh, supernatural mystical element. Uh, a- which he has to then struggle against. It does feel like this film could almost work as if, if it had been placed in an explicitly colonial setting, or at least the structure has a, has a certain similarity to it. Mm. And, and it is, yeah, and in this sense, London therefore becomes the literal, uh, the metropole of the seat of empire, the seat of the seat of empire, but the empire of the of um, the empire within England of this uh, of the. Well, this is something we're actually going. I'm not going to get it too ahead of ourselves. It's something we're going to talk about later on. But yes. this, a lot of this does feed into the, the establishment of the modern centralized nation state and centralized political authority. Yes, and it's actually very relevant on that note um, to um, beware. Of, as well as being a very interesting filmmaker, one of the distinctive things about about Piers Haggard is he is in fact the grandson or possibly great grandson of the novelist H. Ryder Haggard, who uh, wrote a lot of um, kind of. A lot of colonial adventure stories in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Yes, he wrote the uh, story that the classic Hammer film She is based on. Yes, yes. and also also kind of King Solomon's Mines is perhaps yes, the, that's it, the yes. really well-known classic. Mm. Um, but but, yeah, but uh, it is kind of... But it is kind of like a kind of carrying over of those colonial notions, this sense of kind of like anthropological filmmaking that he's exploring as his legacy, but he's exploring it on his own kind of his own civilization. Well in a certain sense the first terri- the first place that you know the English colonizes their own country with the over the course of the uh, centuries the increased political uh, centralization this is what we've already said the, mm. the increased political centralization the increased standardization of the language of the religion um, but yeah, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Mm. One of the tensions that runs throughout the film and one that is perhaps a lot more contemporaneous with the uh, period in which it's set which is the late 17th century is this sectarian tension 
between Catholicism, the kind of latent elements of Catholicism left over from when England was a, was officially a Catholic country, and the Church of England, the Anglican uh, Church of England, which is associated with the ruling political order. But this is brought right into the middle of the film uh, during an odd scene in which the judge, Patrick Weimark, he's alone with his nephew, and it's late at night, and um, he proposes a toast. But this is where we had a different reading. Because... We have a disagree. Have a disagreement here. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> uh, Lucy, Lucy, give your wrong interpretation of this okay, line, well, and then I'll deliver the correct one. <laughs> okay. Well, the line can be read two ways. Because God bless him and keep him in exile. In modern parlance, it means like keep him, keep him stationary in that location to keep him. But keeping someone in an older sense of the term means to keep them safe, to care for them, to keep their well-being protected. And I essentially think that's what he's evoking, what he's trying to um, bring for King James. He wants God to uh, protect him in his exile, which implies that he is either secretly a Catholic or has Catholic monarchy sympathies. I, on the other hand, hold the, that this is a play on, this is a deliberate play on words here, and that <laughs> when he says, may God bless him and keep him in exile, he precisely means, you know, you know, sort of like the old, there's that line in Fiddler on the Roof, God bless the Tsar and keep him far away from us. <laughs> I think that, uh, and this is again something that we are going to talk about a little bit later on, I think that it makes overwhelming sense to view the judge as a stridently and fiercely Protestant figure. Mm. Uh, I think that there are very, very good reasons for believing that. But um, this does bring us into sort of like uh, how, because uh, how important and how um violent this disagreement still was uh, for people in, for people I mean, at the time. Be, that's why he's so why why he makes it more or less in secret because he could then it could spell his end. Yes, because the um the violence that because there was from the Reformation onwards the um there was enormous political um uh, uh, oppression of uh, Catholics in this country. You couldn't serve in public office without uh, declaring an oath in which you stated you did not believe in the dogma of the transubstantiation. Um, Catholics in Ireland after we well, essentially colonized Ireland um, weren't allowed to own land. It was uh, this was this was awful. It was an awful time, and um, there was and for the Protestant uh, elite and the deep the Protestant majority as well. There was also the terror of the possibility of a Catholic king returning and reaping terrible reprisals, as indeed briefly happens with um, uh, before Queen Elizabeth becomes yeah. queen. And yes. there were enormous kind of anti-Catholic conspiracy theories about exactly this throughout, kind of even like long after the 17th century. And Jesuits set fire uh, Jes started the yeah. fire of London Jesuits, Jesuits are the Illuminati mm. <laughs> um, and it's like this is they were the original kind of McCarthyite witch trials, essentially. Well, indeed, well, and, and, and indeed, certain cases were literal. Obviously, there were literal yeah, witch trials as well. Trials. But, <laughs> but it's like this idea, like, it, it's a dangerous idea. It's a dangerous notion that's going to corrupt people and um, cause all sorts of problems for our country. But my kind of initial reading of um, the judge's kind of fundamental Catholicism is quite a straightforward one in the sense that he uses uh, literal means to deal with a literal problem, which is uh, using a sword that resembles crucifix we have our own discussions about this but it does kind of you think it's a crucifix but it ends with him stabbing the demon with this huge sword and it's like uh, there's something fundamentally catholic about using blessed objects or objects in, imbued with some kind of divinity to expel explicitly dark forces see but this is 
precisely where I disagree with you because although that because the lead up to the final scene you see the judge arriving and he has this object this huge object wrapped in uh, in a cloak and it clearly has a cruciform shape yes but when he gets to the ruined church, when he confronts Bermoth, which is a dist- an incredibly physical thing, yes, mm-hmm. he unwraps it, and you see it is not a cross. It is a, just a great big fuck-off sword, mm. which he then just picks up, inverts, very literally, and runs Bermoth through and holds him over the fire to consume him. <laughs> I think that precisely what this is, is the Protestantism was very much associated with rationality and scepticism because though this is not this is a religion where we have extracted all of the superstitions of the fallen Roman church we mm. we don't have any of this nonsense about saints or relics or that certain I mean, certain things always get left behind like kings still have a certain divinity to mm. them sort of kind which was which but, was a prominent theme of the 17th century a century in which we had the most turbulent period of like close ties between church and state yes and because indeed the kings were believed to have um, the power of healing and then we made a war happen about that <laughs> yeah it was um yeah it was a uh, yeah anyway Awful business, but what we see with the with the judge and uh, is not a he is not wielding uh, a sacramental power. This isn't a sacramental object. You are led down the garden path of assuming that this is an exorcism. So, no, it's just violence. <laughs> it's just the purely rational violence. It's state uh, authority. State authority. Uh, but again, we are uh, we we have uh, we'll have more to say about that a little bit later. Can uh, I mention that we're both draped with prayer beads? We are both draped with prayer beads. Yes, we yeah, do. T- we we are kind of we seem to be um seem to be taking team cath quite literally. Um, yeah, I have well I'm an Anglo-Catholic, so I get the be- I get um the best of both worlds. I have my Anglican chaplet <laughs> uh, and uh, I've uh, made I've made Lucy. I've, I've, I've made her hold my uh, Rosary I did go to Catholic school. I'm familiar with the shit. You know? <laughs> um, but one of the things that I find uh, quite interesting about the judge's response to the thing is that he denies it so long, um, which again would chime with your reading more possibly. But I get the sense that there's something more to it, which is this um, it's this idea that actually was articulated by a lady called Margaret Ann Murray, who we're going to be talking about a lot more in this episode. She wrote some, a very, very influential book on witchcraft in the early 20th century, which represents one of the first attempts to form a kind of empirical, comparative, revisionist study of the witch panic and what facilitated it. Um, but one Famously the, quoted uh, by uh, reference by H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. Um, and, yeah. Um, uh, but one of, the, one of the things she says right up top is that even though the, she's dealing with very direct accounts, uh, these have a very specific mechanism for being skewed, uh, could just on the basis of the belief structure at the time. Um, because a lot of social mores or sort of social um, or you know, religious laws and things prevented a very frank evidence-based discussion of witchcraft because if you had to... You couldn't take a middle ground, basically, because um, you either had to... State there was a witch, you know, you'd seen a witch, uh, state that all evidence is true uh, and it can't be questioned, um, and there's all sorts of interesting politics about that. Or if you, um, if you kind of wanted to go against that, you had to kind of deny that any of the reports of anything was happening, whether, whether it was true or a misinterpretation of something really happening. Inter- uh, interestingly, the first court in Europe to just stop doing witch trials 
was the inquisitorial courts in Spain. Which is very interesting. Because, um, that, yeah, which, um, uh, well, well, this is a conversation mm, for another time. But, but uh, yeah, yeah, but, they, but oh, it was precisely on grounds that said, look, this is just patently absurd. This is, pa- mm. no one was talking, like there was a quote from a fry, said that no one, no one was accusing anyone of witchcraft until people started like talking about witches elsewhere and mm. then suddenly everyone's talking about it. So I just don't think there's a good reason to believe in this. But what kind of, what happened was um, if you, if you didn't believe in it, you had to kind of deny it outright, but you couldn't do a fundamental denial that it was possible for the simple fact that witches are there in the Bible. We have the witch of Endor. We have other figures. There's, I think, like Simon Magus and... uh, Yeah, so you have to, like... Is he an apocryphal figure? No, I think Mm. he is in Acts. Oh, it doesn't matter. But But you do have to essentially, kind of, fundamentally state that parts of the Bible are wrong or, kind of, or we're all wrong in order... And you really put your head above the parapet in order to... Um, challenge the interpretation of witches. So we had, we had court, we had a, uh, we had evidence, but not interpretations or any kind of critical structure. And I think, in the context of the judge, I think he's kind of overcompensating because he's very aware of his precarious status as a Catholic in England, and that's why he only only does it when there's absolute proof and everyone's on side that yes, this is a literal supernatural thing that's happening. And then even then, he's like, "Give me a piece of its skin," and it's like, "Okay, this is it." Um, Let's go. Um, which, you know, and then that's like kind of, that's the hands-on Catholic response. But again, this is why I think that he, he is a fundamentally Protestant figure. In mm. fact, he's deep suspicion about this superstitious claim that there is a demonic monster. It's like, I think though it's demonstrated again and again by the fact that he just sort of like, doesn't really believe it. So sort of like, <laughs> he starts like, he starts consult, like, and he goes up and does his homework. He does, yeah, he does, uh, go, yeah, goes off to London to do some research. He's researching the book. He needs to get some physical evidence mm. that this thing exists in order for him to take it seriously, precisely because of the deep associations that Protestants had with that Catholicism was a superstitious religion mm. that worshipped idols. And again, this also kind of, uh, this also feeds into to the countryside city tension because one of the things that finally prompts him is this uh, encounter with the physician who's like a learned he's a learned man on a um, on a level equal to the judge he's been to university they possibly knew each other then but crucially the physician is from the countryside and manages to finally convince the judge by saying look you're from the city. You don't understand these ways. <laughs> um, there was. It's interesting that the role that this kind of um, this intersection between uh, superstition and Catholicism is actually found. And this isn't the beginning of the folk horror revival by any means. But sort of at the beginning of the last century, there was a very strange man named Montague Summers. Uh, you might have seen me tweeting <laughs> about the incredibly seventies edition of his book, The Geography of Witchcraft. I found secondhand. Mm. Uh, Montague Summers. Was a he was a convert to Catholicism because at the time, the beginning of the 20th century, everyone's fascinated by medievalism and occultism mm. and Catholicism, and so they kind of all blurred together. It's into the romantic just a, legacy, yeah, exactly. And uh, precisely, people are really into sort of like the superstitious el- or the perceived superstitious elements of the Catholic uh, tradition. And Montague Summers, he converted to Catholicism, and he then purported to have been ordained as a priest, but there's no actual evidence this ever happened. And there's a chance it might have done, but Mm. it does just very look, he just started calling himself Father Summers. (laughs) (laughs) And there's some wonderful pictures of him in like priestly garb as well. Mm. But what was very peculiar about him is he kind of, he did play a very real role in getting people interested in these old folk legends because Mm. he 
for, for some reason, <laughs> he decided that it was as fundamental to the Catholic faith to believe in the literal existence of creatures like vampires and werewolves and witches, not as metaphors, but as, no, these are things that are as real as you and I, these are supernatural beings that do exist. He decided this was as fundamental to Catholic belief as the belief in the resurrection or the real presence. And he and he like, wrote defences of um, the hammer of witches <laughs> and, um, and all of these horrible things. And in him, we kind of see a, we see this figure that is every protestant rational <laughs> concern about the catholic faith just in one place it's, sort of like his like yeah. his, he's um he had dubious sexual uh sort of like proclivity oh. supposedly uh i don't know if that's true i think yeah. like i think they said it on last podcast uh, uh, right. and he and he does just have this inc- this genuinely deeply profoundly superstitious outlook which he holds to be as fundamentally true to his religion as uh, uh, as the content of the Nicene Creed. He's a very, very, very peculiar figure in which you see all of these tendencies tied up in a man yeah. with a wig and that is, yeah. And that is so nuts because that's basically like adopting what, as you say, was a very negative reading of Catholicism because the very idea, you know, this, this association between Catholicism and dogmatism and idolatry and superstition um, which is like connected to this incredibly xenophobic backlog all the way back to like the 16th century. Um, one of the things, one of the most interesting kind of later things that came of that was the fundamental association of Catholicism and uh, witchcraft and superstition in con- in the context of the Romantic era, but specifically the Gothic movement, Gothic fiction. Uh, basically, a lot of the core original texts of that movement are set in the Catholic countries of Europe. We have things like M.G. Lewis's The Monk is set in Spain, which is very much um, regarded as like the worst, <laughs> the, the peak Catholic awfulness, at least the French have good wine kind of thing. The, um, uh, and, I've, and I've been writing... Oh, it's been a very long time since I've read Dracula, and I'm not even sure I've ever finished the book. But I, I, I do recall there is a line when he, go, you know, when Jonathan Harker goes to Transylvania, and he's commenting on the superstition of the natives, to like making the sign of the cross and decorating their homes mm. with images of saints and crucifixes. And he's he again, he's sort of like the scornful, rationally religious Protestant man mm. going into the darkest depths of. Europe, where it might as well basically be Asia or Africa, for as far as he's concerned, really. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Also, we had things like um, the pit and the pendulum is obviously set in Toledo, but this is all kind of from this long-held prejudice against the Spanish and the uh, and the French to a large extent, and the yeah, the Italians, um, yeah, it's corrupt, wor- effeminate Italians. Yes, it is, and- it's worth mentioning. But although obviously, it did, like it goes without saying, the Spanish Inquisition was a horrible thing. And yeah. It was not quite as caught. Co- it wasn't as camply almost comically horrible as we tend to assume it wasn't ex- like, although sort of like it was it was created because the Catholic the, the newly re-established Catholic monarchy of Spain was concerned all of these Jews and Muslims who claimed to con- who have converted had in fact not converted it's like we quite, need to check we need to check and they uh, mostly did just check um, and to ask them, yes, but uh, uh, but it, but when it came to sort of like also all courts in the entire in Europe used torture at the time, mm. but the Spanish Inquisition, at least on paper, had unusually detailed guidelines about the appropriate usage of it. Sort of like you couldn't do it for more than like five minutes at a time. A physician had to be present. You couldn't do anything that would leave a permanent mark. You couldn't break anyone's skin. Because Jesuits are fucking bureaucrats. Jesuits are sort of like Jesuits are sort of militant bureaucrats. Militant bureaucrats and oddly merciful. 
fool in mm. their application of torture. I don't know. I mean, something like that. But um, it's it, no wonder it, there's so many conspiracy theories about specifically that. But uh, there, there are stories that um, the inquisitorial courts in Spain had such a good reputation as opposed to the civil courts that mm. people who were, gu- who were guilty of civil offences would sometimes just shout out something blasphemous because then it would become an inquisitorial matter because <laughs> they thought, I'll get, I'll just get a better say if it's the if it's the Jesuits doing it, but if it's the if if it's uh, just crown officials. Mm. But uh, oh, but uh, anyway, going back to stuff, like the point is that Catholicism and superstition and witchcraft and demons and idolatry and otherness mm-hmm. are all very closely tied together for the uh, for the ascendant Protestant religious classes of the uh, for time this film is set. Mm. And on that note, there's also a character that we can't not mention at this point, which is he's the kind of counterpoint to the judge's um, direct practicality and insistence on a kind of bureaucratic way of dealing with this, or state state sanctioned way of dealing with this. Um, and that is the actual religious figure in this film, which is Reverend Fallowfield. Pause for unusual priest klaxon. <laughs> But yeah, because basically we see these scenes where he's like, he's uh, teaching a class of children about religion and stuff. And um, he's giving it all the kind of proper fire and brimstone and you and you trying to be very, very authoritative. But he's sort of like a hippie priest. You know, we see him just like caring for a rabbit. And ha- the first time we see him, he's, ha- he's literally handling a snake, which should set up a, your uh, Christian antenna all a trembling. Mm. Um, he has there's something because he is definitely clearly a very he's a protestant figure he's yeah. a, because yeah he's a priest of uh the church of england i and, don't think he catches the demonic plague either like i think he's one of the ones that's spared no he doesn't oh, uh he's yeah. also played by anthony ainley who was not quite the second person to play the master but for all intents and in, in doctor who that is uh-huh. but for all intents and purposes was because the interim guy was just the guy who had to wear the burnt faced rubber mask for a couple of episodes <laughs> um but yeah he it, but there's something interesting about the fact that we do see him having such an affinity of nature because that's more of a franciscan um, um yeah trait so far to sort of like famously preaching to the flowers and to the animals because he just desperately wanted to share the word with them and uh flowers and animals are definitely two key words in this analysis that we're creating <laughs> uh but if it's natural it's idolatrous if mm. it's natural it's evil and fallen there's only the word and the word is to be understood in a purely intellectual sense mm. but yeah but like also one of the very strange things that i think is very crucial to a lot of what we're going to be talking about in a little bit which is the fact that in the first scene where we see Reverend Fallowfield, there is a heavy implication that he's the devil because <laughs> it's the judge being taken out to the site where the plowman has dug up the remains of what turns out to be Baphomet. And, um, not Baph, fuck, Behemoth. Um, and then he's like, oh, the remains are gone. And then up from the undergrowth appears this black clad man in a wide brimmed hat dun, holding dun, a dun, snake. Dun. <laughs> and just saying like, oh, what a beautiful thing. He says a Latin phrase, I think it's like omni, you know, uh, ubique opera da domini, everywhere the work of the master. Um, <laughs> which again, like just completely out of context. If you just entered the film there, it's like, okay, he did it. <laughs> <laughs> and yet somehow he did not. And there's just a boring vicar. <laughs> Brilliant.
That and a lot of other tensions come to the fore in a scene that is very much the crescendo of nastiness in this film. Uh, that is the Scarlet Ceremony. It's interesting that Haggard has said he regrets this scene. Yeah, I he mean, says he it said is deeply. Yeah, <laughs> he says I think it's in uh, the history of horror of Mark Gatiss. He says that sort of like I, I was a young director, I was a young man. I wanted to push the boundaries, and we young, I we were d- physically fit, and we were challenging logic. <laughs> and, and yeah, he has said sort of like since this, but maybe some boundaries were meant to be challenged. Is yeah. a de- it is a uh, yeah. Let's. Let's describe this horrible scene. Okay, so I think there's so many layers to this bit that I think we just need to approach it as a list, because um, or on the, on the as a premise as a list, and then just work from there. Um, the fundamental thing that we learn from this scene is the very kind of mechanics of the supernatural element that we're seeing. Basically, throughout the film, I've mentioned the demonic contagion of the skin lesions. Uh, what it turns out to be happening is the cult is abducting people who've caught the contagion slicing off their skin and then using or entire limbs indeed entire limbs indeed because like yeah um, I think it's we see people uh, about young hands master and... Peter loses a hand to the curse and manages to free himself but he's not quite free but um, <laughs> I think that's him anyway but it's at the scarlet ceremony they're bringing all these parts together and forming behemoth out of the remains um, so sticking it together and that's he's kind of spread himself out and is pulling himself back in harvesting the physical matter and the kind of spiritual matter to some extent as I want to talk about in a bit of the um, of the community to create his body anew in a way not dissimilar to the guy from Hellraiser um, if you're Frank yes Frank yes who um, yes who has to be physically who has to be physically reassembled with um, the blood of the murdered mm. But there's a couple of things. Like, there's one thing our good friend Adam pointed out, which is that... That's um, Adam of the popular Twin Peaks podcast, Diane, which you should listen to. Who we are going to be getting on this show very soon. Very soon, yes. Yes. And um, he pointed out that, like, there's this inherent physicality to um, to Bearmoth um, that gives him an immediate resonance with M.R. James. M.R. James, we talked about in our first episode. He was kind of... He was a challenge to the ideas of um, traditional gothic fiction and really a precursor to Lovecraft in a lot of ways in that all his demons had this same unique physicality. They weren't disembodied spirits. They were kind of gross, slimy things. But crucially, they were part of the landscape. There was something being drawn from the landscape that has resided in the landscape. Mm. Um, And in fact, I think the first... uh in the, I'm not sure if it's the first story or if it's just the first story in the collection of M.R. James I have, is about a guy who goes off to, I think it's Spain, and he mm. goes into a weird old Catholic church and he brings a relic back with him and demon oh, happens. Yes. And again, a horribly physical demon. And it's, oh, it's beautiful how he does it because he just sees this thing's hand just placed next to him on the desk. It's, oh, Christ! Uh-huh. <laughs> And there's, oh man, that's like pure Freudian uncanny as well. Disconnected limbs as a kind of analogy for schizophrenia or the exploded consciousness. The exploded consciousness again through the exploded body. Um, But also, one of the brilliant things we have with young Master Peter is that his hand gets possessed and starts attacking him (laughs) in a way that would be echoed gloriously over a decade later in Evil Dead 2. But to much of my disappointment... Um, he didn't then cut off the hand and it come to life and he has to keep it under a bucket which he weighs down with a book entitled A Farewell to Arms. <laughs> <laughs> um, just that, that, that can't be unsaid, that can't be unthought. Um, but uh, technically it does come back to life because then it forms part of Behemoth. Yes, I suppose it does, um, doesn't it? But, but yes, uh... this idea of Behemoth, he's 
from the lands. Well, actually, no, there's another a weird fiction connection I mentioned Lovecraft just now, which is um, there's a line in Lovecraft, The Rats and the Wolves, where there's just a very brief kind of tantalizing description of a white fleshy thing uncovered in a field one night by a man riding. And it's like, that is so, that is, that came screaming back to me when I saw that undecayed eye in the abnormal skull of a beast peeking from the ancient soil. It's, it's great. And that soil is key because um, there is a central um, recurring chant throughout, well, in, in, a, in a very key scene of the Scarlet Ceremony. And it goes a bit like this. Hail, behemoth, spirit of the dark, take thou my blood, my flesh, my skin, and walk. Holy behemoth, father of my life, speak now, come now, rise now from the forest, from the furrows, from the fields, and live! That could very well be just a central, like, one-line manifesto of the entirety of folk horror and from no the be forest said. we can just shut off the, the mic now burrows, from, from the, the fields and, and live. live oh fuck yeah our father who art in heaven <laughs> <laughs> yeah just uh i'm just gonna <laughs> okay but there's just so much happening in this scene there's that bit where we haven't actually discussed the central horrible thing of the scene which is a gang rape yeah essentially and a gang the... rape that is entirely it turns out at least in a direct sense, unnecessary in the context of the actual ritual itself. A, ga- a gang rape by children of a child. Yes. It's, it's, it, because it's a young, um, one of the children of uh, the lady uh, who, who looks after the house. So they're the working class children and they're kind of, they're made the primary victims and, or the ultimate victims in Angel Blake's campaign of madness and horror. And it's the brother who dies first and then oh, it's, it's so nasty, but that's that's kind of even more unpleasant than the Scarlet Ceremony, I think, is just the two boys coming to collect the girl in the woods and bring her to the, to the ruins. There's... Um, oh, God, yeah, it's... Um, and they don't they... Am I right in thinking they crown her? I think they do, or maybe it's Angel Blake that gets crowned, I'm not sure. Yeah, because there's that... A lot of it, because I'm just thinking of some of the other repercussions this has had, and True Detective season one. Yes. The it when we see uh, gr- mild spoiler for True Detective. Skip ahead a couple of we minutes. We need never to cover True Detective on this show because we've covered Ev- it in like three or four separate episodes. Everything because it it, do, it draws from so much. Um, I. I've lost count of how many times I've watched True Detective season one. Um. It's just perfect. It's perfect <laughs> television. It just brings so much together. Anyway, anyway, there is a particular scene in towards the end of True Detective where you see this horrible grainy footage of a ritual of some kind taking place, which essentially involves a child being dressed in white robes, crowned with um, a crown of. Um, it's not a crown of thorns, but it's kind of um, but with flowers, and being raped and murdered mm-hmm. uh, by mar- by men in animal masks, which is obviously kind of a call back to the Wicker Man. Yeah. It's this is kind this is um, this scene brings together so many of these uh, these anxieties and these tropes about what happens to children in occult rituals and these uh, in these events that never actually happened it was almost 
it almost feels like the blood libel. (laughs) Yeah. It's bringing so much of these horrible uh, traditions of anxiety together. uh, It's, oh. Going back to our Blair Witch episode, uh, blood libel, fantastic uh, medieval death trip podcast about it. Anyway, but the key thing uh, that I found about the Scarlet Ceremony, which, because I'd lost track by the time you finished saying that of whether you were still talking about Blood on Satan's Claw or were still talking about True Detective, but it needn't matter because this is, it's, it's that same kind of anxiety. And what this, what comes together is this idea that it's it is a ritual in the truest sense because even though a literal kind of transmuting is happening the transmuting can't be done without the more tangentially related kind of spiritual things going on around it it because they could it's as it, it appears that they could just put all the skins together they don't even need to die when they're removing the skin um but but they do this big rape and murder at the site of where they're rejoining all the skin together in, in a ruined church where it just which is filled with uh, with plants and animals yeah. and and it's like that's the thing because the scarlet ceremony is the core of what I was talking about with the presence of the supernatural in it and the tension between the human evil and the and the demonic evil is the fact that they are synonymous and they rely on each other because otherwise because it takes both to do the ritual and that's what we see in the scarlet ceremony. There's the uh, there's another um, Lovecraftian element to it in that there's this imp- there's the implication that what's happening here is something that's happened before. There has a kind of a secrecy and a legacy and a tradition to it almost. Because when we see the procession to the... Uh, which kind of has this kind of a faintly obscene May Day feeling mm. to it, this procession to the site of the ruined church where the Scarlet Ceremony takes place, there's... Um, it is almost all children, you know, youths, but there's two very elderly people. There's mm. an, a very old... like a crooked old man and a crone uh, who are with them, who are part of this. And there is the possibility that they are just people who have also been caught up in this almost this disease uh, Mm. of uh, Beomoth's return. Or there's this possibility that they are part of this cult this witch cult, this pre-modern mm. witch cult, this pre-Christian witch cult of some kind, which has always revered him, mm. and they are taking part in this because they know what to do. Yeah. And indeed, the chant that is read out is read out from a book. Yes. It's this, something someone wrote this down. Someone found it. Uh, there, it yes. There's this, so again. This is this is what we I was saying all the way at the beginning that part of the fundamental uh, terror in folk horror is the possibility of the return of a prior symbolic order. One of the... We mentioned earlier Margaret Ann Murray being um, being a key figure and possibly, I think, um, uh, an inspiration for this, if not this film directly, then on the kind of witchy milieu which gave birth to this film. Uh, but one of her key ideas in this film uh, in this study that she made, which is one of the one one of the reasons why she's been heavily debunked in recent years, or indeed in the last century, is because because <laughs> um, she had a belief that all witchcraft cults that there were literally people people seeing witchy things happening, but they were specifically a survival of an ancient Dianic Roman or pre-Roman or kind of meta. Um, Roman assimilation of um, Celtic pagan traditions uh, manifesting in the cult of Diana, which centred around um, birth and um, and uh, fertility. In, um, e- in essence, her view of the witch of the witch trial was that of the witch or the witch great witch hunts of the medieval of, of medieval times and 
just going into modernity, was that it was a concerted, deliberate, systematic effort to exterminate the traces of a pre-Christian mm. matriarchal religion. Yes. That, um, like, so in a certain sense, not to say that they had supernatural powers, but that witches did exist, and there yeah. were cults, and they did have their own rites of worship, which they had kept secret, and they were older than Christianity. Mm. And her take on it was this fact that... Um, that it had been it was the same cult it was a literal continuation of that cult but that the cult had been literally corrupted over the years over the many centuries that it existed in secret um it's like it's like that lovecraft line in uh the picture in the house where he talks about the protestants going into isolation initially they're very pure wholesome people uh but then it it's this wonderful line like um began to have less and less taste in what they concealed, um, and I th- and she kind of sees a thing happening to the cult of Diana through that, and she describes it as a cult previously centered around the moon and fertility and promoting fertility was now solely geared towards blasting it <laughs> uh, like a fucking blight of um, of, uh, of fungus on a field of wheat. It's almost as, like it assimilates the image of itself that Christianity has of it, if mm. that makes sense. In the same way that Montague Summers, he becomes a Catholic and he thinks, well, to be a Catholic, I also need to be a superstitious moron. Mm. And this actually is something that you see in the self-image and the self-history of uh, of Wicca, in that um, Gerald Gardner cla- uh, claimed falsely, it isn't true, because that's the thing with Mar- Margaret Murray, she is wrong. <laughs> yeah. the, she is wrong. Like, obviously, there's an element of this, like, obviously, part of the witch... Uh, of, of witchcraft did so obviously there were people who thought they had witch uh, were practicing witchcraft or thought they mm. were practicing witchcraft it does involve the survival of certain folk traditions but it's not what you thought yeah. it was at all <laughs> but Gerald Gardner where he founded Wicca um, when he claimed that he was initiated into a coven in the New Forest <laughs> which he said was a survival of this ancient pre-Christian fertility religion wow. and that he kind of like he's returning something that has already always existed and this isn't true like it is that there was kind of cribbed it from little bits of things he cribbed it from lots of little bits of places there's actually a theory but this is sorry this is a complete tangent but we big <laughs> podcast is built on tangents yeah there's a theory that because he was a student of alistair crowley and there are certain elements of wiccan morality that are quite close to crowley's um to Salemic notions of morality and ethics, there is one. Uh, there is one theory that because Crowley was not confident Salima was going to survive his death, yeah, uh, that maybe he instructed Gardiner to arrange for its survival in another form. Oh, wow. That um, what is what mattered more than the specifics was that the like. The, the spirit of the law of Thelema, do what thou wilt, should be the whole of the law, love is the law of love under will. But it is the important thing is that survives and that it survives as an alternative to the um to the um Christ- Christian religion and the and similar religions and this is this is what needs to happen now. So there is one theory that's what Gardner mm-hmm. was doing with Wicker. But that's just Strange it's man. a theory among it's a theory among theories. This also possibly just crib lots of stuff from Lovecraft. Or from, <laughs> not from Lovecraft, from from Crowley. I just did his own thing. Or indeed maybe he did meet a group of pe- of witches who met in that's New possible. Forest who did believe themselves to be a survival of a of a of, a, of an older tradition. It is possible mm-hmm. that this was the case. Uh, even is it possible that elements of Miss Murray's of uh, Margaret Murray's theories and Mar- what's it what's her name? Margaret Ann Murray. I Margaret think. Anne Murray, not Anne Margaret. But anyway, that 
to Ms. Her, Murray. Ms. Murray. Lovecraft like to call it. Ms. Murray. It's even possible that she was onto something that perhaps some of this is a survival of mm. the um, pre-Christian religion or very old because like, th- these things do tend to hang around. And again, it was kind of it was Lovecraft that brought us to Margaret Ann Murray. Just another tangent uh, that um, she was the one who is mentioned in Call of Cthulhu, and her model of the cult survival is used to describe and articulate the idea of the Cthulhu cult and its relationship between humanity and these ancient things that predate humanity. And that's, Call of Cthulhu has so many resonances with this film in that respect. We need to, we should just do it. We should do a, we should do a book. We yeah. should do a story rather than the film one day. And yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Tweet us if you like that idea. Yes, please do. <laughs> All right, moving on. In terms of um, this idea of it being a female cult, we're going to be, or specifically a female movement, we're going to be talking about that afterwards. But um, one of the things we really need to think of this in, and this ties into the Scarlet Ceremony and um, witchcraft studies, which is this idea of what was paganism and this idea of the state of nature, or specifically how it was perceived in different ways over periods of time. There's, so there's a very influential concept in political philosophy called uh, the state of nature. Roughly, the state of nature refers to the primeval situation that human beings found themselves in before the arrival of the state. Of the state. Mm-hmm. Two of the most important theorists of the state of nature were Thomas Hobbes and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, they, have very, they had very different accounts of both human nature and the state of nature. So Rousseau famously begins his treatise, uh, The Social Contract, with the remark, Man is born free, yet everywhere he is in bondage. For Rousseau, the state of nature was one where human beings enjoyed a certain innocence and freedom. There's, he, has, he does have a kind of positive image of what the state of nature was. Mm. And we might perhaps, you know, perhaps join him in these kind of whimsical th- imaginings of what primitive life might have been. I think there were kind of, there were nuances to it, but it's always kind of, it's always the easier inroad into understanding the Romantic movement, which was a fantastically complicated and and uh, multifaceted movement. But this it is kind of be, what we're taught in schools when we study William Blake. I mean, which, it should be understood that sort of like, the, like, although he does think the state of nature had a lot going for it, the point of his treatise, The Social Contract, is why we needed the state. And romantic philosophy is an articulation sometimes of these ideas. Mm. Uh, so, but yes, there is certainly something kind of, but that my basic image of the state of nature, mm. one where there's no property, there's no law, there's no government. Le sauvage noblesse. Indeed. <laughs> um, there's something kind of fun about it. It's a nice idea. It's, it's an attractive idea in a certain sense. It has something going for it, certainly. Uh, but Despite this freedom, and it is a state of freedom that we were in, uh, at some point the human race comes together in the establishment of the state. And the reason for this isn't necessarily clear why this happened, but the results of it are that we surrendered our natural liberty for the social contract. And the contract, and this contract binds us together under the authority of the sovereign. And uh, Rousseau, like he thinks that, he, like he does, he is defending the state in this mm. treatise, like I said, and he does think that we owe 
fealty to the state that mm. we sh- if the prince tells it is like he says if the prince tells us to go to war a war we know we will die in we should there's an interesting kind of dark counterpoint to this in a lot of kind of i think they were things that came up in the early days of the american republic um usually associated with the kind of slightly jingoistic or um not authoritarian, but uh, but warlike and ideologically driven, which has survived over into the American right. But one of these ideas is that a man who chooses security over liberty uh, doesn't deserve either, which is such a harsh, unpleasant, edge lordy reading of a kind of of a counterpoint to the station. It's like, no, you. He's saying no. Rousseau's an idiot. You're you're damning yourself if you submit to the will of the state in any way, however kind of free you are. Just be a wild man out there. Live your best life. Survive. Kill those who would thwart these rights. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting off topic. Um, but a co- but the major counterpoint to Rousseau's image of the state of nature and the origin of the state um, is found in Thomas Hobbes, the English philosopher. So Hobbes has a similar but radically different account of the state of nature. While for Rousseau there is something undeniably idyllic about the state of nature, Hobbes famously formulated that life in such a, in such a state would be nasty, brutish and short. Mm. For Hobbes, the state which he characterises as the biblical monster Leviathan, is necessary to prevent us from waging a perpetual war upon one another, the war of all against all, he calls it. So by, st- so by establishing a monopoly on violence, which is the Weberian, I believe is the Weberian definition of the state, mm. um, the state is able to enforce law and order because the state can always result precisely to that ultimate sanction to violence so we end up in a kind of the alternate rather than in the war of all the war of all against mm-hmm. all we end up with pax leviathan mm-hmm. and famously in the front piece of his book leviathan there is this image of the of, of the commonwealth of the sovereign and it is a grotesque image it is an enormous giant man who is made of people. Mm. He is constructed from all of the different members (laughs) of the state. And in one hand, he holds, uh, I believe in one hand, he's holding a sword, and in the other, he's holding a crozier, a bishop's uh, staff, Mm. which is intended to sit, and what this is intended to symbolise is the way that the sovereign binds all of us together into a more benevolent situation than we would find ourselves in otherwise by unifying the power of uh, of violence of civil authority and the church together into a single unified modern nation state a centralized political authority in which all of the elements of society, including religion, are all tied together into a single being. And it is that very authority that is charged into the intense two-handed blade that the judge storms into the ruins and lifts um, lifts and rents uh, Baphomet as- Behemoth asunder with. It's This is the church, this is the state, this is the way of things. We shall vanquish all these primitive things that fall beneath our boots. And this is why I do conceive of the judge as a fundamentally modern Protestant figure. Fine, I'll Be- give you that. <laughs> <laughs> because that's ex- precisely what happens, is the you get the arrival of this agent of the authority of the central of the new central Protestant state, 
and he is carrying a sword. He is carrying all of the right to violence that Leviathan possesses, and he uses it to strike and kill Behemoth. Mm-hmm. And I discovered to my absolute delight in the research for this episode that Hobbes wrote a sequel to Leviathan <laughs> called Behemoth. Mm. And Levi- the Leviathan of Levi- the eponymous Leviathan is the state, is the sovereign, is the strong sovereign who can and who has the right to kill you. And the alternative to this is the chaos of weak government and the war of all against all characterised as Behemoth. Which, and actually, it's worth mentioning here that the figure of Behemoth is a, uh, is a biblical figure who's referred to in the book of uh, Job. And it's unclear what, it's unclear what Behemoth actually is intent is. Mm. Um, but it's, it comes with a part in Job where God is just talking about all of the things he's made. Mm. And there's this wonderfully strange passage where, unfortunately, once again, it is uh, Bible lesson time with Father <laughs> Sean. Where, where he goes, Behold now, Behemoth, which I made with thee, he eateth grass as an ox. Lo now, he's, his strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. He moveth his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his stones are wrapped together. His bones are as strong as pieces. Uh, his bones are as strong pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. He is the chief of the ways of God. He that made him can make his sword to approach unto him. Surely the mountains bring him forth food, where all the beasts of the field play. He lieth under the shady trees in the covert of the reed and fens. The shady trees cover him with their shadow and the willows of the brook compass him about. Behold, he drinketh up the river and hasteth not. He trusteth that he can draw up Jordan into his mouth. He taketh it with his eyes. His nose pierceth through snares. Um, it's not clear what Behemoth is. <laughs> Maybe an elephant. Maybe a hippo, maybe a dinosaur, <laughs> but not a, a dinosaur. Old dog. <laughs> there is also a theory, and there's actually this is there's some good reason to believe it. But when it's talking about um, his tail, which moved that moveth like a cedar, it's talking about his dong. They're just <laughs> saying that his dong was like a cedar tree, and because it does also then talk about his stones, which mm. yeah. But then it turned out the jar J.K.A. Leviathan had the way bigger metal crucifix deck. Yes, Leviathan's. Big ass Protestant dong smite of Behemoth's weak ass Catholic dong. Mm. Uh, wow, this did get Freudian. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> is that gratuitous? No. This evocation of Leviathan uh, implicitly and Behemoth explicitly, and that being mentioned in the same breath as both uh, Hobbes and Rousseau, uh, more or less necessitates a discussion of William Blake, um, as does the fact that the central protagonist uh, is, well, the central antagonist, uh, besides Behemoth, is Angel Blake. She's Her name is Blake, and Blake, William Blake, the romantic poet William Blake, talked a lot about angels. Um, ergo. So, ergo, <laughs> we can't not talk about it. So, um, 
Uh, so here we go. And so, also, no, dis- and, and no discussion of the English countryside as a mystical site is complete without bringing up William Blake anyway. Oh God, no. it, like, he is like the, the, the Druid prophet. He of- was like, he was the inventor of folk horror and he was the, um, he was the creator of doom metal. Uh, we, we couldn't have stoner or doom metal at all without William Blake. It would just be ridiculous. And also he invented circuit boards. Um, because, which I'll get onto another time. I think wait, that's, wait, what, that is what? too much of a tangent. Sorry, well, no, I, I, I for one can't wait. Okay, <laughs> shall I just say it now? <laughs> no, no okay, actually, okay. That's, that's the hook. That's, that's the sequel. Uh, hook. That's the hook to our like Blake-centric episode. <laughs> uh, but basically, um, Leviathan and Behemoth come up in two parts of um, of William Blake's canon of works. One is one of his visual works that he had as a um, as a frontispiece to. A different poem. I think it might have just been a, a piece of artwork he created, um, which is um, which has which is where we get that fabulous picture of Behemoth and Leviathan above and beneath one another, mm. and they're presented as this kind of weird juxtaposition slash uh, meditation on the state of uh, humanity in its um, material civilization situation, status, era, what have you, um, and he personifies. Um, he personifies Leviathan as Admiral Nelson and King... Is it King James? King the Duke? Someone. The, the Duke the, of Wellington? The Duke of Wellington. Yeah, I think it's the Duke of Wellington as Behemoth. I may have to correct myself in the follow-up to this. Um, but the other context in which um, in which Blake's, uh, Blake's take on uh, Leviathan and, and Behemoth comes up is in his epic poem, Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem, again, interestingly, not to be confused with the poem um, and did those feet in ancient lands. In ancient wait, time. In ancient time. I think it's just ancient time. Uh, no and plural. did those feet in, in ancient time. time. You know the one. that was Yeah, it was set to music and the hymn that it created was called Jerusalem, but it was in fact called uh, and did those feet in ancient time. And um, he, that's not it, but he, he did this um, big epic poem called Jerusalem. Uh, and... It's basically him forging a big, sprawling mythological history of England, partially cribbed from the Bible, partially cribbed from uh, uh, classical sources and mythologies. And his his own inspired visions. Yeah, his own visions and his own unique cosmology. And it is fundamentally, it is a very, very dense work. Um, So I think all we can really do um, to to not kind of malign ourselves in some way is just to pick out the key bits that are appropriate to um, to the film. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the the actual writing about Behemoth and Leviathan is more or less a side note um, to a discussion about other things. And where it comes up is this long protracted discussion of the idea of the uh, the separation of humans' nature, um, nature or soul or first principles that he just he describes as the emanations. Um, and it's this, it, as transformation was to Ovid's metamorphoses, so does it seem that unification of emanations um, is the kind of core theme of the book. Because uh, Albion, he, is, he sees him as this great ancient divine giant thing uh, that is part of a family uh, sit, that sits along with Christ. You know, it's this big, big elaborate thing. And... Um, He's in a state of sleeping because we've fallen into the material world. He's still with us. The material world uh, in our present eon, if we want to think about Crowley and Eonics for a bit, is um, called uh, Eldon. Eldon. Um, 
Aeona, Aeona, the state of materiality of the fallen world, where, um, where Albion's emanation has been divided into the four parts referred to as the Zoas. I can't remember all the names. I think one of them is Los and one of them is Urizen. Um, it's, it's Los, Urizen, uh, lo- Love? With a yeah. V's in it? Or... Um, Oh, I'm, this, is, this, is out, yeah. this is out of my intellectual uh, comfort zone. There are like two two others. It should also be mentioned there's something distinctly Gnostic about this idea of, sort of divinity and emanation, uh, yeah. which I don't think was something necessarily... It wasn't be, wouldn't have been something conscious on Blake's part, I don't think. I but, think, I mean, he was just an extremely learned man, and he was picking up a lot on Milton, who was kind of, I think, in de- engaging with these things via a kind of secondary source level. Mm. And uh, also the fact that, like we said, so like Blake, he, he did he did have visions of, a, mm. of, of, some, of some variety. He did have... Uh, Yes. There's Again, a- not unlike Milton, but it was actually one of his visions where I think it was a deceased brother appeared as an angel and told him a um, a, a way of kind of more or less copywriting his images by making them irreproducible. No, it was um, he was concerned about his intellectual property. That was it. And he was like, oh, God, I'm so anxious about this. And um, this brother came to him in a dream and said, I've got a new way of making your engravings. What you do, rather than just kind of etching it out manually, you draw it onto a double-sided piece of wood with copper stretched over it and attached, fastened to it. Um, or, you know, like a bimetallic sheet. And then you paint onto the top copper layer with um, a acid-resistant dye or ink and then submerge it in acid, and then all that will remain is the image that you inscribed onto it, but now only the image is the, um, is the copy, copper remaining, which is how we create circuit boards. Um, and ah, it, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and then... Okay, we're, no one's going to listen to the next episode. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so... Um, but it's this, like, the, the emanations are basically a figment of this state of nature um, that, or, you know, um, are the manifestation of what we would describe or the vehicle for the state of nature because the state of nature was when we, were, we had unity, all were one. Um, we, us, we hadn't become kind of alienated from ourselves and our souls or our first principles I divided. Think, I think that um, Urizen is the, um, is the Zoa that is associated with sort of like law and rationality and binding together. Yeah. Um, He's like the Apolline? He's like the Apollo stand-in? Kind yeah, of to an extent. Yeah. Um, I, actually, I think, we may, we think we've referenced this text before, but a really good essay that talks about many, many, many different things, including a really cool exegesis of um, Blake as a the radical potential of Blake's vision mm-hmm. is Elizabeth Sandifer's essay New Reaction to Basilisk and everyone should read that it's wonderful um, and there's this wonderful line as well from uh, one of his poems it's one of his untitled poems just sent this to a friend yeah. which I quoted at the beginning of my dissertation for my masters which I was very pleased with myself about <laughs> which goes may God us keep from single vision and Newton sleep <laughs> um, which again so this is it, it, all this of whom is... feature in, uh, in Jerusalem <laughs> yeah. actually yeah. No, that's just the very good painting because he does think of himself as, a, as a, in a certain sense that his opponent is Newton and what Newton's vision of the world means ah. uh, that is a mechanistic and rational and ultimately cold. Even when it is dealing with literal magic it is still very very cold and rational and logical and sciencey in well, its approach to the magic. Newton was that Okay, again, this is a bit tangential, but Newton has had a very interesting religious life of his own because this is something that was only discovered relatively recently and he had to actively keep secret during his lifetime. It's that he, he was a heretic mm. in a very precise definition of this. He was a heretic because he denied the Trinity. Yeah. He believed that he was, like, he'd figured out, because he was an incredibly arrogant man, he believed he'd figured out the actual truth of Christian religion and he denied the, exi- he denied the Trinity. Mm. And we only discovered this 
very very recently just like one of it like a chest was found that had a ton of his papers in it which hadn't been known before in which he sketches out his theology and it's an anti-trinitarian theology and this was this was as worse than being a catholic at the time because even even catholics confessed well the catholics confessed the trinity to deny the trinity was a criminal offense up until the 19th century yikes Uh, (laughs) um yeah because it's just it felt to no that because that's the um one of the standard the common standard among the christian churches is sort of like we at least if you confess the trinity then if nothing else you are christian at least Mm. uh to go to take it that far is that is that is an incredibly radical step to deny the trinity Mm. um anyway but talking about going back to this 1970s folk horror movie yes and blake's jerusalem therein uh, (laughs) and influence thereof um one of the key things that comes up when we think about um again what i was saying with the state of nature and unity um it's kind of this is my final kind of thoughts well my main thought in terms of my kind of thesis on whether or not um piers haggard was trying to do a blakian thing i think by calling um by calling the beast behemoth and by calling a character angel black i think he wanted to just he knew about this stuff and he just wanted to put people in that frame of mind i think that's kind of i think that's the most probable explanation for this uh, involvement um but but again, there's a couple of things that are very key to the Scarlet Ceremony that come that chime with Jerusalem. One is this idea that it's something from the furrows, something something dark um, and alien in the countryside of the state of alienation. Um, this uh, this thing he well Blake basically he described contemporary landscapes but in a mythological context. So we get wonderful lines like Loss creating a great furnace with a hammer in the valleys of Middlesex. <laughs> or there's one line where he just says like, from Golgotha to Camberwell. Uh, Which is just one of the most beautiful sequences of words in the English language. From Golgotha to Camberwell. Take then, that, Celador. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, and, and I think something that really should be emphasised here is I consider this to be a deeply conservative film. Mm. And I think that I think that's why this is Hobbes, not Rousseau, is precisely because the alternative to Leviathan and his great big dong sword uh-huh. is chaos, violence, rape, murder, dem- and the demonic, the literal demonic, in but- uh, returning. This is, no, this, this is why you don't, why you don't leave London. This yeah. is sort of like this is what lies. This is what lies beyond. This is sort of like this is why you know the, you know this is why the colonial metaphor I think works. Yeah. So sort of like no, we have to go out into the darkness of our own land and bring the light of reason and Protestant rationality and the state and violence and modernity with mm. us. But what's very significant about that isn't just that it's um, state violence against nature, but it's state violence as a necessary antidote to dangerous chaotic femininity and this is something that again mm. you know like the um to, to borrow a term from our um less than esteemed colleague dr peterson <laughs> <laughs> um yeah women the chaos dragons no seriously that is that is one of the things that dr peterson he does he is an academic he does do his research he should stick to his own field and not just go on the internet but um but yeah it's this idea that baphomet it's it is um the state of nature is a the corrupt state of nature is a female one um, and when we see the the, the 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 phallic sword of the state rising up, there can't there it's unmistakably phallic, and it's destroying and cleansing and purifying the corrupt, weird, mysterious feminine that it finds there. Which I've, is why Angel Blake is the central antagonist and not one of the men. You and know. of course, sort of like Peterson's response to this is, hey, I'm not saying that the chaotic feminine is bad. You know, I'm saying we do need to have both. But what if too much women? <laughs> what if not enough? Enough dong sword. Yeah. Uh, uh. And as well as 
having resonances with with Blake's. Um, I haven't Jerusalem. read his book, nor yeah. will I. <laughs> we watched the H Bomber guy video on this. I know the contrapoint video, video on the subject, on this, which is yes. very very good, and you should also see. I'll link out to it. But um, this like this has one uh, association with Blake, which is this idea that. Um, the femininity or some corrupted form of femininity is synonymous with the fallen Ulro world. It's inherently material and masculinity has to form a kind of mental connection to the immaterial. You find, yes, you find which that... Is, which is like going back to Eve, but yeah. You find that in a lot of, um, as it, in sort of like in the Western esoteric tradition, at least in certain formulations of it. I remember when, um, during my wayward youth, I tried to read um, Julius Evola's Revolt Against the Modern World, mm. which is, don't. <laughs> just, just don't. And um, he, I remember him just talking about the catonic as the, the earthly as female and ah. the celestial as masculine. And if we don't rise above the catonic and the feminine, then we literally cease to exist. We sink back into it and we dissipate. But if we heroically, um, this is in his like fash formulation <laughs> of that, hasten to add, if we heroically um, rise above this into the masculine and the celestial and the immaterial, uh-huh. the, into, uh, then that is how we become deified and immortal. Mm. And, it, and it's, of course, you know, Eve got us kicked out of the garden. Eve um, gave us up to the flesh and the physical decay in search of earthly knowledge and the less than spiritual things. Every, we... Yeah, everyone conveniently forgets that Adam mm. ate the... Um, well, not an apple, but Adam ate it too. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, this... Uh, in that, in the sense as well, it just it can't not be said that, um, that, and I'm sure there are plenty of people who are furious that we're not approaching this as as the top at the top of the show simply because it is so core to the study of witchcraft is the dimension of gender because it was born out of a profound misogyny. Yes, um, like one of the one of the explanations actually given in a very good episode of In Our Time um, on witchcraft and witch trials is this idea that the reason witches are crones or it was basically that was the status of an older unmarried woman in um, kind of seventeenth uh, century society, which made you the least trustworthy member of the community in any context. <laughs> because it's like, why aren't you married? Why haven't you taken on your divine role as mother and wife? Uh, why aren't you dutiful to the masculine? And now it's like, oh, you're old and you need to you need to have a livelihood. So you'll look after children because you're good at it and you'll learn kind of fe- um, arts which are seen as feminine, such as herbcraft and basic doctoring. <laughs> um, and then become a figure that, who's kind of outsider, but at the same time, the community relies on, which builds up an instinctive, intense dislike uh, from the masculine. And, and it's uh, also obviously... Bes- and- from, from society at large, not just masculinity as an abstract concept. <laughs> There's also obviously the queerness of it as well, the unmarried woman, yeah. the suspectness of her sex, of of her sex and her sexuality. Mm. And this goes, you know, this again chimes with what we were saying of um, the the birthing cult and its association with witchcraft. And this is, I mean, this is just something that you do encounter um, frequently: the um, the um, combining what is socially uh, sexual practices which are deemed as um, wrong or criminal or or, or unnatural with notions of the demonic and the supernatural and one of the famously one of the charges brought against the Knights Templar is that they worshipped false gods and they committed sodomy with one another Mm. but I think there is something also very fundamentally modern 
and intent and in fact contemporaneous with the time and with the um, with our times and with um, Blood and Satan's Claws weird legacy uh, that we're we're doing our own bit to contribute to, I guess. Uh, that is the the very much I talked about, you know, the communism and the idea of Catholics as the as the Reds under the beds of their time. Um, but in a post-communist world, we also have certain resonances with witchcraft and also Catholicism, in that it forms a kind of functionally analogous system to the hauntology model of Derrida, which is that. Um, it's something that's there, it's something that's going to come back, it's something that we can't get rid of, um, which is, you know, like, like you said earlier, it's just something buried under the field, it's a spectre, it's going to haunt us, there's little we can do about it, we can only try to dominate it with our own contemporary philosophy that enforces our worldly strength, all the worldly strength we can muster against it. Um, but the reason why it's so difficult and what drives it as this... Um, as this incredible um, kind of powerful force or theoretically powerful, potentially destructive, potentially haunting force is the fact that you're in trying to stamp it out, you're envisaging a future, but it has its own future. Um, and so and that's the same with Catholicism, but it's profoundly so with um, with witchcraft. Witchcraft is the state of nature. It is sinfulness. It is pagan barbarism before the coming of, of the Archbishop of, of, you know, Augustine of Canterbury, the conversion. It's the um, it's the maligned ancient savagery of um, of the old order before before the Pax Leviathan. Um, but you can't stamp it out because um, because it has its own vision and its own vision um in the romantic, you know, in the romantic era, but even earlier, was was this idea that no, it there will be a return to the state of nature, and this is um, this is a threat to them because it's a threat to uh, the uh, the the fate of the nation as a Christian uh, as a part of Christendom, um, but it can't be stamped out because nature can't be stamped out, and it'll just continue to haunt us wherever we see it. It's the only way. It's as if the only way that the um, the bourgeois state can. Um deal with these things is in terms of um, what Adorno termed a, a transcendent negation, not an imminent negation. It can't take it on and dismantle it on its own terms, which is what we, um, which is what Adorno means by, by an imminent negation. It can only be rejected and destroyed outright as, in, as a totality, in a transcendent negation. Mm-hmm. Um, it can't be all, the only option is to totally reject it and to annihilate it in its entirety. It cannot be dealt with rationally in mm-hmm. a certain sense. It can only be, uh, it can't be politely dismantled in the same way that you'd explain an error in an equation. Mm. It has to be, no, you have to get, just cut it out. You have to do away with it, in its, it as a whole, as such, in its yes. entirety. But as well as these ideas having a very important relationship with uh, the history of witchcraft um, and the the mythological associations it came to take on in the context of the film, um, we've also got to think about the world in which uh, Piers Haggard was making this film. Uh, it is one of one of the things that's been picked up on in the folk horror revival. I believe it was one. I saw it at a conference. I believe it was one of the men from the Folk Horror Revival blog, who picks up a very important note, which is that um, we have this idea of the trinity of um, core folk horror films because they arose out of a historic moment. And that moment 
was the end of the hippie dream. It was um, the the rise, the kind of liberation of the 1960s turning sour. And part of that liberation was very much an interpretation of the state of nature as articulated by the romantics, that it was going to be, uh, we were going to shuffle off, you know, we, we all, hip, all we hippies are going to shuffle off these corrupt, unpleasant, bombing out, annoying uh, things of modern civilization and just return to nature because nature is glorious. And then they got Charlie Manson and, <laughs> um, and cults and um, drug addiction and nightmares. And so the the folk and that's when folk when that dawned when hip, when the hippie dream died because the hippie dream was only about like three years in duration um <laughs> from hate ashbury to woodstock and stuff and then um then it got super dark super easily because it meant that a bunch of charismatic figures were able to just pick up on these uh, liberationary overtones and do really really dodgy skeevy things um and so you know that's what that's what especially um blood on satan's claw i think is about um, Again, this is why I said yeah. it's a fundamentally conservative film. Because Piers Haggard saw this as the yeah saw this as the outcome very cynically as the outcome of this liberation is just the nastiness um, of of brutish Hobbesian um, <laughs> savagery, and um, and you know and and Piers Haggard was very explicit about this. He said, no, this is based on um, the Manson murders and also uh, the Mary Bell murders that I don't know so much about. I've not heard of um, Yeah, th- this is just from the Wikipedia page. Um, <laughs> but also, this is very visually encoded, I think, into the um, into the Scarlet Ceremony scene because we have a very strange thing going on throughout the film. And this is one of the... Um, this, this long association with flowers, which I want to talk about in a bit, but it's this like, if you were to cut to just and no context to the Scarlet Ceremony, it would seem like some sort of idyllic thing. It would look like Coachella. It would be, uh, you know... Um, I mean, it looks idyllic up yeah, until the rape, yes. Up until the rape. It's like, oh, it's all these children with flower crowns, and this is so Instagrammable, and oh, God, what are they doing? Why is that not... Why is there a knife? Oh, God. Yeah, it's darkness. It's And that's exactly where Piers Haggard was at with this that is the corruption that is the destruction of the hippie dream and that's what happens if you don't go to church yeah <laughs> and there's also kind of there's also kind of you know just stylistically i think um there are resonances from the time as well um, it was 1971 when this came out and that was the same year as the devils um, um but more crucially actually i think because even though the devils obviously has every bit it's like a kind of classier more queer more nuanced version of this film in a lot of ways but um on the flip side to that we have the the very unrural the very urban the very chic the very modern a clockwork orange which i think has a certain stylistic resonance with um with this with this particularly this scene and it's kind of remarkable they came out in the same year because again that was a film dealing with children uh, sexually assaulting children uh, or, you know, the book was more overt about that. But this is, you know, this is youths out of control doing very, very dark and nasty things. And there's particularly that scene, um, the Scarlet Ceremony, reminded me not specific, not just of, like, kind of the rapes as depicted very in a very stylized way in... Well, they're not. Basically, the way that rape is depicted in the Scarlet Ceremony is very similar to the scene in the Ludo, um, where Alex is undergoing the Ludovico te- uh, technique treatment, where he's um, being kind of desensitized to violence. And he's being shown a video of people who look very much like himself and his friends committing the violent and uh, horrific acts that um, 
that he, you know a parallel, a mirror image of the act he's been doing. But up until that point in the film, Kubrick uh, was keen on depicting um, depicting these horrible things happening in a very artful, very balletic fashion. And then when you see it on the screen, it's the same thing happening, but it's just like grubby, intense, shuffling, documentary-style filming. And I think that's that's what resonated most with me. Uh, seeing this film, and which I'm probably going to just repeat verbatim when we invariably cover Clockwork Orange, but hopefully <laughs> by that point this will be long enough in the past that um, I won't sound like I'm just repeating myself. <laughs> but just even even beyond that, stylistically, it is it is a more radical film than I think it's really given credit for. There's things like you know there's. Uh, the, the the way landscape is treated is very very uh, you know landscapism. It's got very strong resonances with that particular element of um, the folk horror tradition, which you mentioned I think uh, when we were talking about the show. The the attempt to imply a kind of enchantment with the countryside uh, as you know that's part of the I think I, there's certain kind of formations of that legacy in this film. But one of the other things is that it I think I'm remembering this film in the context of the Mark Gatiss thing. I remember seeing it and thinking, oh, this is just a kind of hammer horror gothic, bloody slasher film that has kind of aesthetic, you know, very superficial similarities to uh, Witchfinder General and The Wicker Man. And thought like, oh, they're just trying to make it a retroactive thing by by giving it, um, giving, you know, they want to have a nice round number of three. But then watching it again for this and actually studying it critically, no, every bit of it is so core to the tenets of folk horror. And almost to the, in a sense that this is the most, um, this is the most uh, conscious of its status as a folk horror film. Um, you know, going back to that line, there's the tension between countryside and city. There is the things rising from the earth. It knew what it was doing and it knew why it was doing this because, because it was inspired by... Uh, it was inspired explicitly by things that were perhaps more implicit to um, Witchfinder General and The Wicker Man. And also, just thinking about it from a stylistic point, we get very interesting things like um, just like like the nuance of the script and the fact that um, the fact that it's shot very interestingly. There are lovely kind of framings of stuff. This is something. Yes, yeah, so this is something that Haggard says again in the Mark Gatiss mm-hmm. documentary. He says that he knew he had to establish very early on that a low angle is associated with the monster because when you first when it's found it's the skull of the eyeball Mm. and then there's this shot of I saw like a shot of it looking up almost and he said I knew that from that point almost if I have a low shot that associated with the soil then you know Mm. what this means it's a really nice example of how you can do that in film and then we're kind of we carry this over into the fantastic opening credits it's got this music over it which is um descending cadence it's lulling and it it kind of drifts between what you think is going to be a kind of idyllic kind of countryside elegy uh i'm not sure i don't know my musical history that well but you know um you know uh, something something you would just get on a nature documentary or you know some like pathé news thing about the wonders of the countryside but then it just turns dark it shifts to minor and then it's like oh god you're going down you're going down into the soil And 
as this music's playing, we're getting images of like super close-ups on plants and animals. We have a we have a fantastically low angle shot of a crow with just you know in the monster pose with its face glaring down at you while the film the while the title blood on the blood on satan's claw plays across the screen but then it's just kind of it's very close-up shots of grasses and things which um which serve to take the familiar get up close and render it alien and i think that is kind of that is one of the key things that really marks um marks blood on satan's claw as a as a film that you know it's 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 excellence is very much understated Mm. it's very good yeah it's very good um, it's horrible, but it's very interesting. It is worth your time. Yeah. Well, this certainly isn't going to be the end of our explorations of folk horror by any means whatsoever. We mm. have, um, we there's still so much uh, that we can cover in this in this territory. We have, re- we have, um, we've got some really interesting things we want to do with this. Um, but there is still there is still a huge amount we could potentially discuss with just this one film here. Mm. But uh, we're going to we're going to spare you that, and, and we're going to uh, save some of these delightful points when we discuss other films. And again, we want to do. Like like I suggested, we're we're hoping to do at some point sooner than more information on that scene with regard to cyberpunk, like kind of getting an idea of cyberpunk now. We want to do something that's focusing specifically on the folk horror revival and the kind of politics and the ideas and the art and the legacy of that and its and its connection to our fundamental principles of the weird, the eerie, and the hauntological. Exactly, yes. Um, Lucy and uh, I, in fact, next month are going to be exploring the English countryside ourselves a little, yeah. aren't we? We are walking an old pilgrimage route in Hampshire with our friend Richard. Which also uh, happens to kind of sync up, happens to sync up with a disused railway line, the Mion Railway. Um, <laughs> and I, I love deindustrialized country stuff or industrialized country stuff and the alien quality that that possesses and I'm probably going to take a lot of pictures and perhaps maybe have a have a stab at some photojournalism while I'm there maybe we should bring a, uh, a microphone with us and record some field notes maybe literally in the field <laughs> um, well I think this is a, it's a very very warm beautiful Saturday here in uh, weird towers uh-huh. uh, I think we are gonna leave you there listener Yes, so uh, without any more to do, stay weird and keep it signal. <laughs>